Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. I'm still not feeling so hot, but I never like missing these, so I wanted to power through, but please just keep that in mind when you hear my answers. I think I'll be able to get everything right, but uh, if you hear something that doesn't make any sense at all, or if I just got your question wrong, please just re-ask and I'll fix it next week. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got. A tonal assassin wanted to follow up with a question from last week about using a CRT VGA monitor and a capture card with a RetroTank Mini in order to game on a CRT, but still be able to stream all under a budget. If you want more details on that, please check out last week's, but looks like they're having a problem, and it seems to be with the HDMI to VGA adapter. And I guess the Porta brand one that they used and the other one I suggested didn't work. They're waiting for the Tendak brand one, and it'll show a signal, and it'll cause the 2X Mini to blink, and then there's no more signal. The 2X Mini works perfect with the HDMI cable to any other monitor or any other leads on HDMI to VGA solutions. So I just wanted to double check some basic troubleshooting stuff and then I'll kind of get into the next part. But I would just make sure that you try it first without the splitter. So the Tink Mini into the HDMI to VGA into the CRT VGA monitor. And if that works, then the splitter is the issue. It sounds like it's not, because it sounds like you've already troubleshooted a few other things, but I just wanted to mention that in case anybody else runs into the same thing. But if you did do that, if it works the same with or without the HDMI splitter, and you're trying two different converters, I mean, it could be the cable, but it's not very likely, especially because you're talking about 480p signals. So if it was a cable on the VGA side, um, you would probably notice like if you wiggled it, it dropped signal on anything that you used. And if it's the HDMI cable, we're only talking about a 480p signal. So it's not likely that's the problem. It always could be, but not likely. So unfortunately, you might have run into another situation that I often talk about that doesn't happen as often as you would think, but it definitely happens. The reason, one of the many reasons these devices are so cheap, because remember, these devices are sold in, or manufactured in the tens of thousands, whereas retro gaming products that are often $100 or, or more are manufactured in the thousands, not the tens or hundreds of thousands. And in doing so, you get the price down, but you also run into an issue where sometimes companies run out and they, they swap guts with other devices that fit, um, or people just piggyback on each other's moldings so that they have the same cases with different insides. And I've had people buy three of the same adapter, open it up, and one of them has a totally different chipset than the other two. And we're in the midst of a very bad, unprecedented global part shortage. So if there were ever a time for a company to pull a switcheroo, it would be now. So I did recently buy more of those converters off the same exact links that I provide to all of you, and they did continue to work. The reason I keep buying these, by the way, is because inevitably somebody will come over or I'll talk to somebody who needs one. I'll send them mine thinking that I have piles of them, go to use mine and I have none left. So I had to go buy another one. So I have been continuously buying these unintentionally and I have not run into any issues, but it is possible that you could, which is another reason why I link to Amazon for a lot of this stuff, because if you're just polite and explain what happened, they'll almost always give you a full refund. You know, especially if you're just polite and say, hey, you know, I bought this because a reviewer said it worked. I have the exact same setup and it doesn't. I think this might be defective. I I've almost never run into a problem with Amazon with that. So I don't abuse it either. I never buy products, review it and return it or anything like that. I'm sure I could if I was a scumbag, but it's not how I roll at all because I know this definitely affects more than just Amazon. 
But whenever it's a legit thing, I think you could return it. And it stinks because you wasted your time, but at least you didn't waste your money. So my guess would be wait for the Tendac one to show up and see what happens. If you're still having issues, there's got to be something else in the chain because this is something that not only have I done, I demoed it on a video. So I, I you know, that's, that's important to me because I like to show people my work because it does kind of drive me nuts when people, you know, hold something up and say, this has no lag or something like that. Because even if they're right, how do we know? And I feel like it builds trust with everybody when you show your work. So I'm pretty sure I've shown this before to prove to you that I'm not just making this stuff up. Um, I can't really remember. I'm still a little foggy, but I, I'm pretty sure this exact scenario is something I've done multiple times for, for many different reasons. So keep at it. Try to be patient. It sucks that you're having trouble, and I'm sorry to hear that, but it could just be that you got a couple of bum adapters or a bum cable in there or the splitter. Definitely don't forget to check that because I've daisy chained like three of those together before for a bunch of crazy uses and it's worked fine. And I've had a couple of brands just not work when combined with certain other equipment. I believe the View HD didn't work with an HDMI to HD SDI converter, but it worked with like everything else I tested. So yeah, definitely check that as well. And hopefully I pointed you in the right direction. Mikkel wanted to follow up on a question from their other post. I can't remember if it was an email or if it was a post from the other week. So the short version is they have a one-chip SNES that they purchased from somebody that had a boardy RGB bypass in it. And they were getting a green tint regardless of whether they were using HD Retrovision or RGB SCART cables. And they did not get that green tint when they used both of the same exact cables on a different SNES that they had that was completely stock. So... That definitely is the mod at that point then, um, which stinks because you bought it pre-modded and whoever did it should have tested it and should have very clearly seen this. And I'm not talking down. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has something happen. There's always a chance that something worked perfect at somebody's house and a shipping service threw it down a flight of stairs and a resistor popped off. But, you know, stuff like this usually is just a bad mod. And I'm sorry to be insulting, but it is what it is. You know, it could be extreme circumstances, but most of the time it's not. I do want to politely remind everybody that you do not need to RGB mod any Super Nintendo other than the Mini or Junior. The All of the fat ones output RGB natively, and the one chips are much sharper. And if you're crazy like me and 1% of a sharpness different, difference matters to you, then yes, you could do an RGB bypass on those to improve the quality even more. But the difference between an original non-one-chip SNES and a one-chip is much bigger than the difference between a one-chip that's stock and bypassed. So that, that's just something I want to put out there. I'm certainly not saying you shouldn't do it. And if you're somebody that has like a RetroTINK 5X going to 1440p on a 4K monitor, you're probably going to notice a difference. It's just, it's not going to be massive. So I just wanted to put that into perspective if anybody wasn't aware of all of that. But uh, you mentioned that some people uh, tried or tried to help you figure it out. And it seems like one of the resistors was the wrong type, which is a very, very easy mistake to make, by the way. But once again, you're supposed to test these things before shipping them. So hopefully that's it. Um, hopefully you'll be able to fix it fairly easily. But that's why I always say, you know, use reputable modders that people that you know or people on forums have used and always just ask for pictures because it's been my experience that anybody where you say like hey um you know i've never seen your mod work before I, you know i don't mean to be rude but could you show pictures of your work 
usually people that are proud of their work will point you to their social media. Or if they hate social media, they'll just send you some pictures saying like, here's all the jobs that I do. I have an Instagram where I post all of my work. And, you know, you could, even if you're not familiar with that, you could kind of send it to people who are and say, hey, what do you think of this person's work? And, you know, you still don't know until you get it. But usually anytime people have blown off what, uh, you know, the question or like, oh, like here's a blurry cell phone picture that doesn't actually show the mod, something's up. Um, and it also, you know, I've also seen the Dunning-Kruger syndrome where people are like, yeah, I post everything I do on social media. Look how awesome I am. And it's a ball of wires and glue and one of the most horrifying mods you've ever seen, but at least you know. So, uh, McCall, first of all, I hope I got your name right. And second, I'm certainly not shaming you for modding, mod chasing or any of that stuff mod chasing. I, I don't know what I just said. Sorry, I'm still a little sick, but I just wanted to put it in everything into perspective, both for you, but also for anybody else who's listening that might wonder why you've modded a one chip that already outputs RGB and how to determine where to go if you do want this stuff. So hopefully that made sense. Dan Bailey wanted to know if I had any recommendations for a SCART coupler or a plug to receptacle SCART cable that's commercially available. They've thought about making their own, but that's quite a bit of work for a novice, and they were curious if any commercially available solutions are out there that I would recommend. Um, so first of all, I agree totally. I've made a million of those SCART cables, and they're always a giant pain. I'm not very good at it, so when I want to do a good job, it takes forever. Uh, and you know, even then, I occasionally will have issues or two. So it's um, it takes a lot of time if you're not used to it. You don't do it all the time, and you know, you're trying to do a good job, which of course you should. So I totally agree. I, I hope stuff like this is commercially available. Now, if you're talking about a SCART coupler, we released one last year. Uh, that tested extremely well with MD Fourier and with all the video tests that I do. Um, and this was kind of a, a small thing that I, I just thought was a neat convenience that I didn't realize was going to get popular. And I didn't really even think of a lot of the other reasons for it, but this one's still out there. Um, I'll leave a link to that in the description, but you also mentioned a plug to receptacle SCART cable. So essentially what you're talking about is a SCART extension cable. And I think in order to properly answer that, I would need to know what you were using it for. To just give you the blunt answer, I would wait till Retro Access opens their store again and ask to have a custom cable made, because that would probably be the easiest place to do that. As far as a plug to receptacle coupler, I'm not sure why you would need that unless it's something like you need space, like something's bumping into something else, so you wanted to move it up. And in which case, this is an open source design, so you could certainly modify it if you wanted to. And making one of these is far easier than making a cable, because yes, it's a pain to to get the circuit board aligned just right. And yeah, you know, you got to order a, a bulk of parts in order to just make one, but it is far far easier than than doing a cable. So you could do that if you want to. Um, and, you know, consider re you know, consider posting that design as well if you do end up making one for yourself. But as far as the cable goes, uh, retro access would probably be the place to go. But if you'd like, just next week, kind of explain why you need one of those, because I might be able to give you better answers. Because depending on your situation and depending on how long you need to go, you might be very well benefited by using a some kind of distribution amp or switch that you could put in the middle of the two devices to get you a longer run without signal degradation. And there's a bunch of other stuff that you could be using it for that might or might not work. So let me know what you need if you'd like, and I could try to elaborate more. But if that was the answer you're looking for, hopefully I pointed you in the right place. 
AJ Haberak said they have a question about getting 240p output from the CPS2 digital mod to use on a BVM. They've tried using HDMI to VGA and HDMI to component converters, but they could only seem to get them to output 480p or 720p. When they switch to 240p, it seems to break the connection, and they suspect these converters they're using can only output 31 kilohertz. They know it's possible, so they may be doing something wrong. So to troubleshoot, they tried connecting their HDMI to component converter into the OSSC, and it only displayed a signal at 480p and 720p, a very soft-looking signal like you would typically see from a cheap SCART to HDMI converter, oddly enough. Do I have any suggestions on something I might be they might be missing, or recommendations on a product that would accept and output the 240p signal? First of all, Excellent job on troubleshooting. You just took like most of my answer away by already uh, having the information provided that I would have asked you anyway. So excellent job, AJ. To answer your question, it sounds like you just got a bum converter. So I always suggest using the ones I link on Amazon. And like I just mentioned before, there's always a chance they're going to pull a switcheroo and what I got is not what you're going to get, especially during a global part shortage. However, I've continuously bought those as well as I've swapped and, and given these to friends and I've had good luck with those. I've had some people say that they bought them and they worked, but one was softer than the other, but that could have been their cables. It could have been the adapter. It could have been a million things. So I would just say, check the link in the description. And if you're not in the U S it's an Amazon link. So you should be able to buy something similar worldwide in your region. Um, And that's definitely where I would start with something like this. The other thing you could do is HDMI to VGA and the HD15 discard adapter, which depending on your needs and depending on your setup, if you're going to use that adapter for other stuff, that might be the way to go. Uh, but if not, then you know just stick to the component converter. So I'll leave a link to both in the description. And once again, good troubleshooting. Adam Adam Ann wants to know what's the god-awful noise that's coming out of the analog pocket when it's disconnected from the dock. It's the one complaint they have about the handheld. They own two of them and both do it. The noise is a crackling sound and the pocket continues to make that noise for a few seconds after being disconnected. So that's an interesting one. Um, I still, I have my friends here sealed in the box. I haven't even opened it yet. Uh, luckily they're patient and don't need it right away. So I'll get to it eventually. I'm not going to do a review simply because there's other excellent reviews out there that I could not do a better job doing. It's not, you know, the analog fanboys always be like, so Bob's snubbing him because he didn't get a free one. No, there's just other people out there that already did an amazing job. And I don't think I could add anything to that. I would still love to do a live stream just for the heck of it. Um, and I would check that, but I have one of the questions I want to ask is, so to clarify, the pocket's docked, and then when you pull it off the dock, it makes a crackling sound for a couple seconds and then stops making the crackling sound. If it stops making the sound, maybe just remove it from the dock when it's powered off for the short term, at least. Um, but that's definitely something I would email analog directly about and just say, Hey, what's going on? Is my dock defective? Two of my pockets do this. Um, is that not proper procedure? Are you supposed to power it down before removing it? But that just seems like the, the pocket trying to reconfigure itself for handheld mode. And often that, that ends up making weird noises. And, and whenever you do stuff like that, even with video devices, sometimes you get some weird interference on the screen for a few seconds when switching modes. So I would just, 
kind of check with them and see. And, uh, you know, I, I'll try to remember to check that whenever I do the stream. But I also want to figure out how to do that because I want to use it in handheld mode and stream. And I'm not sure if that's possible. So we'll see. But, uh, you know, I'm certainly interested in taking a look at it. I, I do think it seems to be such an amazing device for people that want to use original cartridges on a modern handheld. So I'm definitely looking forward to checking it out. But it'll be a live stream or something casual. It won't be a deep dive review. Once again, only because other people have done it so well. Um, Digital Foundry, My Life in Gaming, and Macho Nacho Productions just posted theirs uh, as I'm recording this. So there's already people out there that are way more experts at handhelds than me, and I strongly recommend checking those videos out. Uh, and I haven't watched Tito's yet, so maybe he addressed that in the video. I'm not sure. Green Devil wants to know, does adding a 32X to the Mega SG plus DAC negatively impact image quality of Genesis non-32X games in a noticeable way. They're one of the crazies who added a 32X to the Mega SG plus DAC setup, and they're wondering if it caused a noticeable decrease in analog image quality. They have custom retro-access RGB cables from the DAC to the 32X and from the 32X to the PVM, and they also modded the 32X for Kevdris's noise fix. They figured adding anything to a chain of analog devices will have some impact on signal quality, but how much of an impact is what their eyes can't tell. Lots of work to play their childhood copy of Virtua Racing. So once again, shout out to the correct troubleshooting steps. Thank you for posting all that in here. Um, the situation that you have described should be totally fine. Yes, you're right. Anything you add to the chain of an analog video signal will decrease the quality, but how much do you have to zoom in in order to see it? Is it a matter of if you sit closer to the TV, you can see it, or do you have to do what I do and zoom in a thousand times in order to see it? And in my experience with setups like that, shielded cables, make sure to use a good power supply for the 32X. And if you don't have an original, grab a triad or something, but good power supplies, shielded cables. The only time I've ever seen a 32X add interference is on the 32X layer of games. So it passes the Genesis layer through pretty much untouched. And then if there is interference, it's going to be added to the 32X side of things. Now, especially in the case of something like the Mega SG that outputs that uh, 240p signal digitally to the DAC, I mean, you're getting as clean of a signal as you could imagine from a Genesis there. So it is my guess that in your scenario, you should be totally fine. And if there is any interference added, it's only on the 32X games, which there's zero way to avoid anyway. Um, you know, you did the Keptris fix. Uh, I'm sure there's other tweaks you could do, but I think your setup sounds perfect. And I don't think you would have anything to worry about. Now, if anybody else has had that scenario, uh, I would love to hear about it, but respectfully, please put the same amount of troubleshooting that Green Devil did and in that you're listing your cables that you're using, how it's connected, your power supply, and that way we could all determine whether it's the scenario or whether it's the hardware itself. So based on your question, sounds like you have a perfectly good setup. Uh, and if you don't see anything, it's not like there could be some softness added that you wouldn't have noticed unless you did a side-by-side -side comparison. Like I think if you, it's one of those things where if you look at it and you don't see wavy lines across the screen or something very noticeable, then you should be totally fine. And I, I really wouldn't worry about it. And I guess a good way to do that would be maybe play the original virtual racing for a couple of minutes and then play 
Uh, well, no, you couldn't do that because you can't use virtual racing through the 32X. We'll play a game with the same type of colors or something through it to see, like maybe Sonic the Hedgehog versus uh, Sonic and Knuckles, just so you could kind of see if there's a difference. And if you see interference on the 32X version, then that's all it would be. But it's pretty much it. You should be fine. I guess I'm kind of just speculating at this point. So to answer your question, I think you're good. <laughs> Christopher Dale wants to know why VGA monitors with BNC inputs have a vertical and horizontal sync input. Can C-Sync devices be processed somehow and run on these types of monitors using this 5BNC connector arrangement? So there's two answers to your question, and the first one I could definitely answer. The reason VGA monitors have separate horizontal and vertical BNC inputs is because VGA is RGB HV. So those BNC inputs are very simply each of those video signals broken out into their own individual connectors. I'm not sure why certain scenarios would have needed it. It could have just been a broadcast thing. It could have been that was the most common for certain scenarios. I have two VGA monitors sitting here that I have been dying to do a live stream on and I just haven't had time. Uh, so and they also have VGA and BNC on them. And I'm just speculating that the reason there's two connectors is to cover two use cases, but it is the same signal. So you could absolutely take a VGA cable from, you know, a PC running, let's just say 640 by 480 and connect that to the VGA input. Or you could take that same VGA cable coming from the PC, split it to a 5BNC adapter, so VGA in and then you know 5BNC out, and connect it to the RGBHV, and it's the same. There's no different, it's just the connector on the end. Now your question of can C-Sync devices be processed somehow to run on these types of monitors using this 5BNC connector arrangement, depending on the source signal, yes, but almost always yes. So you would just take something like a 640 by 480 RGBS signal and run it through an Extron sync device, some of the community made ones, although those are usually in the opposite direction, and you should just simply be able to separate sync. However, if you're talking about a VGA CRT monitor, almost none of them supported 15 kilohertz signals. So that means if you're taking the RGBS signal out of a Super Nintendo, that is a 15 kilohertz 240p signal, and it doesn't matter what you do with the sync, that's not going to work on almost every VGA CRT monitor ever made. However, there are a few devices that could output 480p over RGBS. Uh, yeah, RGBS, sorry, still a little loopy. And and that's if that's the case, you just need a, a way to separate the sync signals, and that should be fine. Now, on the opposite side of things, if you had a 15 kilohertz RGB HV signal, that's why devices like the HD15 Discart are out there, because very often it is a simple and discrete um, signal or combining that doesn't require any power. Some of the ones like the Extron boxes do a better job, but they might not be needed in a lot of scenarios. So that's kind of kind of the explanation is you know why. Why do they have both BNC inputs? It's just simply because that matches the same signals going through VGA. Um, now, why does VGA have uh, you know horizontal and vertical sync separated, and why do consoles not? I have no clue. And you know, especially with even older computers that put out RGBS that way, 
that is a question that I, I just couldn't even imagine. And I am, uh, I would guess maybe it's the same reason that you would have BNC and VGA inputs, and that's just to cover more than one use case. Maybe somebody's setting this up in an environment where everything is distributed over single BNC cables, and if it's a pro monitor, offering both inputs as opposed to two VGA inputs would get the company to sell more because they could cater to more environments. So some speculation on the end of that question, but uh, the beginning of it should put anything, everything into perspective. And if it doesn't, just please ask the question in a different way and I'll try to get it when I'm, uh, when I'm thinking a little bit clearer. Richard Webster wants to know, when calibrating CRT screen size using the 240p test suite, what resolution should they do it at? The Genesis supports two resolutions throughout a lot of games, 320 by 224 or 256 by 224 and the PS1 can even support a ton of resolutions, including a full 320 by 240 That's a good question, and I, I think it really depends on your use. Um, I know that the monoscope pattern was just released for the 240p test suite that helps with this stuff and could make it a little bit easier. For me personally, I usually set it to somewhere in the middle. So I would take 320 by 240 and I would make sure that there's overscan on all edges. And then I would load up a Super Nintendo and a Genesis game and see, is there too much cut off? Is there not enough of the screen used? And I would spend a very short amount of time finding a happy medium. If you have a bunch of consoles hooked up through a Switch, this is even easier. But I just try to find something that gives an overall decent experience and that I'm not wasting a ton of screen space. And consoles like the SMS and NES, you're going to do that anyway because they never fill the screen. But consoles like Genesis, Super Nintendo, and everything after that, I just try to find a happy medium where I'm not losing a lot of screen space, but I'm also not cutting off too much. If you really wanted to be obsessive over it, like um, you could set it per game. So this is something where if you're the type of person where you say, I'm going to be playing this one game until I beat it, and then I'm going to switch to the next game, and I'll switch to the next it's actually not that obsessive. That's actually a, a perfectly reasonable scenario in which, okay, you know, uh, A Link to the Past runs at 256 by 224, so I'm going to load up the SNES test suite, calibrate it to that, finish the game, and then I'm going to go play a game on the Genesis that runs at 320 by 224, so I'll go calibrate it to that, so that over the next few days, that keeps the perfect screen space. Um, the only time I wouldn't suggest that is if you're somebody that just constantly switches between games. Like, Hey, you know, got a couple minutes to kill before I got around. Let me go play a light gun game and shoot some stuff. And, you know, I'll come home and play a racing game. And no, my friends are coming over and now we're going to play a fighting game. And, you know, if, if that's the case, I would personally just find a happy medium and leave it at that. And over the years, I've kind of learned to embrace some of the impurities of using a CRT. Because as we get things like really good CRT emulation on flat panels, all of the geometry is going to be perfect there. So when I use a CRT, I kind of appreciate even more how things aren't always quite perfect. And, but that's preference. That is, there's no right or wrong answer for that. You could think that that's the stupidest thing I've ever said, and you would be right. And somebody else could go, oh, that's not a bad idea, Bob. And they could be right too. So, <laughs> you know, that's just, just wanted to share my feelings and thoughts on it, but hopefully I kind of added some perspective. If you want some more answers to this, or if you want to learn more about the monoscope pattern, check out the articles on RetroRGB. And of course, you could always join the 240p Test Suites Discord and see if the team there would be able to help out at all. Alan Bingham has a bunch of questions. I read every word of them, but just in interest of everybody else's time, I'm going to skim through them here. 
First, they cleaned their entire cartridge library recently with CRC QD Contact Cleaner, which is hydrocarbon and alcohol-based, and they believe that's the best solution. I've never used that before, but I think if it's contact cleaner, it's meant to be exactly what you used it for. But they got a little bit of the cleaner on the main board and started noticing some of the green color of the board was starting to develop a slightly milky white residue. So... Whenever I do stuff like this, I always double and triple check that what I'm using is safe, and I I don't know for 100% sure what you're using, but it sounds like that's safe. But when I'm done, I then give it some kind of alcohol bath. Uh, I also want to just back up a second and say that when I clean my cartridges, the first thing I do is open it up and just take a Q-tip and some isopropyl and rub it down, and if it doesn't look physically dirty, and you know I rub it a couple of times and the Q-tip is no longer getting black on the end, then that's it. If I notice some funk on the contacts, I use a pink pencil eraser, which is a trick I've used for years, even on ram sticks and stuff like that. Uh, And then I redo it again with isopropyl. Not that a pink pencil eraser rubber is going to damage anything, but I like to be clean with this stuff. I don't like to leave it in there to get stuck in cartridge slots or anything like that. And then if I do notice things like so often people have like spilled soda in their cartridges and stuff like that, uh, I'll take an electronics brush, which looks like a toothbrush, but it has slightly different consistency in the bristles. And I'll dump uh, isopropyl on top of the board and kind of just, when I say scrub it out, I don't mean like jamming it in there, which could possibly mess up some of the components. I mean, scrub it like the the bristles are getting all over everything and it's getting all of the stuff out, but I'm not being rough with it. So I scrub it all down and then I kind of, if it's really dirty, I'll just pour a little bit more isopropyl on it, tap it out in the sink. And then I always hit it with compressed air. You could use cans, but I love those plugged in devices and I make sure to get all of the liquid out. And then if it's a sunny day uh, or even not, you know, I'll try to leave it in a window for 10, 15 minutes. And that's not to let the heat dry it. It's to let the UV rays of the sun help evaporate the rest of the isopropyl. That last step's probably not needed. And of course, if you left left it in direct sunlight all day, I'm sure that's bad for it. But I do think it's just one extra little thing to make sure you don't have any liquid in there and that it all evaporates quickly. So if that's something that you would feel comfortable doing, try that to get rid of the residue. And if that works, cool. If it doesn't work, I would never use that contact cleaner again. I would try to look more towards what other people are doing. But in all honesty, I don't, I've never found a need for that. Uh, And this is something that's evolved over the years. My advice 10 years ago when I started retro RGB was different than it is now. But the only scenarios in which I would not do the alcohol and the pencil eraser is when there's rust or corrosion or damage to the pins. And each of those is really an expert solution. So I could talk, start talking about that here, but I, do, I just don't want to get confused with stuff like this. So hopefully that adds some perspective to it. Um, you asked if that's purely an aesthetic issue or if there's a chance that your games might be ruined. Um, I don't know. It all depends on the, the, the liquid that you use and what it's doing to it. So definitely try the isopropyl bath and go from there. Uh, there's also uh, IV or... Um, UV cleaners and stuff like that. But my solution is going to cost you like 20 bucks tops. And that's if you get a big jug of isopropyl and, you know, and uh, the electronics brush. If you already have alcohol and an old toothbrush you don't need anymore, that might work too. Although the toothbrush could have some impurities on it. But anyway, it's not an expensive solution. So it's worth trying. Uh, 
Next, they've been on a mission to dump all of their own ROMs, and even though they know they could just download them, they feel a sense of ownership when the ROM came from their own cart. I completely agree. I know some people say that's crazy, it's all the same, it passes the checksum, and they're right too, but I also agree with you on that one, so I get what you're trying to do. Uh, I would just Google whatever's out there, because I thought the Retron 5 was able to dump everything, but I haven't used that thing in so long, I don't know if it even supports Game Gear. I think it did through through an adapter that they sold or something like that. Um, I can't quite remember, but I do know that if you jailbroke it, you were able to dump all of the carts that it supported at the time. But this is going on memory six years ago, probably. So uh, I definitely, you know, don't quote me on that one. But I would just look into anything emulation-based that accepts a Game Gear cart and see if it's been hacked in order to do any kind of ROM dumping. And if not, you know, you could just try maybe... uh, I know there have been handmade Game Gear to Master System adapters where you can't play the games on a Master System because of the color palette, but that should work for ROM dumping. I'm definitely not an expert, so you're going to want to default to the community for that one, but hopefully I can at least give you some ideas on where to start. And your last question, I got nothing. Um, It's about jailbroken PS3s running hybrid firmware and messing around with PSP emulation. I've never tried that at all, and I think if I gave you any advice, it would just be the wrong thing pointing you in the wrong direction. So while that seems like it might be a cop-out, I just, I would rather, I would rather just say I have no clue than try to give you bad info. So sorry about that. YRock has a couple of questions about Wii on Wii U, and I can't really remember the last time I did any of that testing. It must have been back when I did the Wii Duel video, and I really don't remember most of that other than I did a bad job on the captures. (laughs) What I saw with my eyes, I could not get to be represented in the captures, and everybody rightfully gave me a bunch of shit for it. So, uh, based off of memory, what I think is that playing a Wii game on a Wii U is pretty much a similar experience in that it's not adding a ton of lag, it's not completely changing the way a lot of games are played, it's it's pretty true to the original, and you could of course use the original controllers and stuff that you want, uh, but I don't know if there's anything else factoring in. I know some people have discussed the output of both, and some people think it's better, it's worse, it's passable, it's not. Um, There's been debates as to this, and the way the information was presented could kind of be interpreted different ways. So if you're playing it at 480p versus 1080p, um, and I really don't know what the final verdict is, and I keep meaning to circle back to Wii U, I even started jailbreaking mine and I got halfway through, I got sidetracked and I left the Wii U piled on my desk for like a month. And eventually I just said, I don't have time. I had other people waiting on me to work on their projects. So I put it away and that was years ago. So if anybody knows for sure or or has any repositories with screenshots, I remember Extrems talking about it, but this was years ago. So I don't know if he'd found any new info or anything like that. So It's a good question, and I'm kind of wondering myself where exactly we're at, because I know a lot of changes were made in the the jailbreaking scene on how things are accessed, and a lot of tweaks were added, so it could be an excellent solution, but one of the things that did annoy me when I first tried it was how long it took to put in a disc and boot into Wii mode and then load up that, and, you know, a lot of people said I was just being stubborn and impatient, which is fair, but it still annoyed me, so... um, Other questions, do I know if it's safe to have both the analog 
and HDMI ports of the Wii U occupied at the same time. They know they don't have simultaneous output options on the Wii U, but it would be very convenient if they could send um, Wii content through the RetroTINK 5X via component, and then just switch back to HDMI when playing specific Wii U titles. I am pretty sure that that's totally safe to do. I can't imagine a scenario in which it wouldn't be, because plugging in a digital HDMI cable isn't going to be putting any more of a draw on the analog components. If anybody knows any different, please chime in. I don't know for sure, but I just can't picture a scenario in my mind in which that would be dangerous, so I'm pretty sure that's totally safe to do. Um, lastly, as a side note, the, the downscaling issue they talked about last week, they think, or a few weeks ago, they think the problem was one of their HDMI to component converters. So maybe you're having a similar problem as the other person this week where they happened to get a bum converter that wasn't compatible with 240p or something like that. Um, so they were able to get it working now. Uh, and they said it also could have been the power cycling they did. It's one of those things where it's working now, so they're happy. They've been playing Metroid Dread, and the lighting effects and background art in particular really shines on a CRT. So I'm happy to hear that that's all working for you. That's very cool. And someday I would love to jump back into Wii U analysis and modding. I know a lot of good, trustworthy people have done work, better work than I could ever do, but I would certainly love to speak to them, uh, compile some information together, and kind of put it out out there as an easy like here's what you need to know about the wii u type of thing so which is kind of what i always do with these things but i like doing it and i'd love to jump back in when time allows shorjor steinholm said that they just picked up a luva crt for free awesome find i loved my luva articos and i loved my luva aconda and i wish i had saved at least one of those they're they were big and heavy and you know, it would have been impossible to store all these years, but if I somehow could click my heels together and have one here, even if I could only really use it for one or two consoles, I would have loved to still have it. So good call. Congrats on finding it. Um, for being a 100 hertz CRT, they don't think that it looks like a bad display, but their question is they have some RGB consoles and some composite ones running through a GSCART switch. When they have an RGB console turned on, the TV shows the image, but when they use a composite console, there's no image even through the same SCART cable. When they use one of the composite breakout adapters from their G-SCART switch and plug it into their TV, then the composite signals work. Do I think the TV doesn't look for composite signals when RGB pins are present? Yes, or it could be one of those things where that SCART input is RGB only, and another is composite only, uh, or, or there's no composite other than the RCA jacks. It could totally be one of those two things. It could be that the voltage are is being provided that tells the TV switch to RGB mode. It, it does seem like a pretty mechanical solution like that. So luckily you should be able to, to have an easy way to fix up all of that stuff. Um, they said it's not a practical solution having to switch input each time they switch between RGB and composite. And they also use a Framemeister for capturing and would like an output of the GSCART switch available for it. Yeah, unfortunately, while it's not the most practical, I think that's going to be your only bet. And I know 100 hertz TVs definitely have some issues with retro gaming. I vaguely remember a video I watched years ago from RGB Rob that talked about a very similar, if not the same TV. Um, I'll link it in the description just in case anybody's interested in it. But it's my strong opinion that if you have the room for an odd CRT, keep it. 
and use it and figure out what's the best use for it. I'm still looking for one of those HD CRTs, uh, one of the Sony ones that processes the image wrong in, for gaming in most cases, because if I remember correctly, when I had one, Scott's old one, Cousin Scott, when we had that one at the shop, that that worked amazing with PlayStation 2 because of the way it handled 480i, but it didn't really do a great job on anything else. And if I had the room and I was a big, huge PlayStation 2 fan or any game that was 480i, I think it would have been worth keeping. So I think if you end up stumbling across another CRT that might be more suited for what you're trying to do, if you have the room, keep the Luva because you might find a couple of cool uses for it that you think really stand out over the rest. Or you might think it's crazy to keep a huge CRT just for uh, for one use. That's fine too, but I'll, I'll try to find Rob's video, and uh, I haven't watched it in a while, so I'm not really sure if it's um, if it's relevant or not, but I definitely remember enjoying his take on it. Jerry is using an RGB to YC, that's the RGB to S-Video converter from Ashenworks, and it works fine with NTSC, but when they run PAL through it, the consoles are displayed without colors. Um, this, there's a switch on the RGB to YC for this exact reason, and it's because NTSC and PAL are different color spaces, so that's what would always happen. So you should be able to just check out the Ashenworks box and flip the switch to PAL when you're using a PAL signal and vice versa, and that should just solve all of your issues. If it doesn't, let me know and, and maybe let Ashen know too, but I have one right here and I've tested it and it seems to work fine. Uh, so give that a try and see if it works, but I hope that it's just as simple of a solution as flick the switch whenever you need to. Well, that's it for this week. Looks like all the questions were only on Patreon this week, but I just want to remind everybody that ask a question wherever it is that you support. Just please ask it in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. And as you saw today, I really enjoy just scrolling through and answering them in real time like that. So any question you have, wherever it is that you support, please ask there. And if I miss it, it's almost always just because the question came in after I was done recording. Um, if it's a time sensitive thing, just DM me directly, but I never delete questions. I never skip over them. I do skip over things like, thanks for answering the question or a nice job. And it's not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I just try to always be respectful of everybody's time listening because I do appreciate so much that people care to listen to this. So I try to, to get through them in as time sensitive a manner as possible. But Anyway, thank you to everybody who watches and participates in these. Hopefully I did a good enough job. Um, you know, I, I think I got all the questions right, but I am still a little foggy, so who knows? I'm going to cross my fingers and hope this one came out okay. But thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.